Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Word musicians. Here's a quote from Christian Wyman from an essay I was reading this morning on Edna St. Vincent Millay, who he says is, in part, underrated, which connects to the homage I'm going to do in Gwendolyn McEwen, who is also, as many say, underrated. Now, I would argue that Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, though she wrote some amazing poems, uh, was still exceedingly appreciated in her time, and Gwendolyn McEwen was partially appreciated in her time, and that unfortunately certain aspects of their poetry have not aged well. And that is often the case. So Christian Wyman says, any poet lives two lives. There's the life of dates and places, ambitions and degeneracies, money and love and the lack thereof, the life in short that everyone leads. Inside of this, or raveled up with this, is the life of artistic consciousness, which, no matter how directly it may seem to derive from events and actions, bides its own time and bears its own pains, and either acquires and sustains some existence independent of that biological life to which it's tied, or dies with it. And then he says a little bit further, it involves some understanding that the engagement between a poet and the book she reads is something more intimate than influence, the link between life and language not reducible to subject matter. So everything is interwoven intricately with each other. And, you know, it's so interesting how easy it is to reduce any artist's life to the external events and to not really get at their internal process. Um, I think that wonderful book about Pat Lowther, <clears throat> where I'm going to forget the title right now, and I'm going to, Christine Weisenthal, where she talks about, she talks about the internal process and the metaphors and the symbols and the consciousness that created the art. And I think when it comes to Gwendolyn McEwen, the best thing to do is to read Rosemary Sullivan's Shadow Maker, if you want to get at a sense of not only what Gwendolyn experienced from an early age, her mother being mentally ill, being raised by her father, having that unstable beginning, and then a lot of what she went through in her marriages and so forth, uh, but also her whole obsessions, her series of utter desires to absorb herself in mythology, especially Egyptian, and to engage with <clears throat> things like um, going to Greece and steeping herself in that culture. And also she became completely obsessed with T. Lawrence and she wrote a whole book about him. So, you know, that's what it was about. It wasn't about these superficial um, pursuits. It was about this deep and entangled engagement with um, existence, which includes what you read, what you are uh, fascinated by on a research level, and not just what you have happened to you externally. So Gwendolyn McCune was born in 1941, 
And she published her first poem at the age of 17 in the Canadian form and left school a year later to become a writer because she just wanted to make it herself. So this was the era in the late 50s, early 60s. Canadian literature was just very new. It was a little baby. And uh, you, you weren't going to go get your MFA to publish your books. You were just living in the world, accumulating experience, reading your ass off, doing performances, and learning by process. Uh, there wasn't cliques, there wasn't milieus, this was all just nascent. Um, you know, we have Al Purdy and Milton Acorn and Margaret Atwood and a few others, uh, the Montreal group. Um, but she lived in Toronto. So she's prolific. She produced, by the time she died at 46 years old in 1987, she'd published over 20 books of poetry, novels, children's fiction, a travel documentary, radio plays, and verse dramas. So again, I don't think being prolific is particularly lauded in Canada. Um, I put a Facebook post up the other day. I don't often do that anymore. But I said, oh, well, when my next book is coming out, I'll have published 17 books for adults. And this will be my 12th book of poetry. And I really, I'm not a numbers person. But it's just interesting to see, you know, what in the period of time, which is over 25 years now that I've been publicly writing um, what I've been able to publish, uh, which is less than Gwendolyn McEwen uh, and more than many. And, you know, as I said, it's not about numbers, it's about endurance. But there's this strange feeling about being prolific in this country. As I said, we prefer somebody who's published under four books and uh, does other things for work that preoccupies them. And there's this notion that if you produce less, then it's automatically better, which obviously is not the case. You could produce a lot of garbage. You can produce a little bit of garbage. Uh, you could produce a lot of really good stuff. But you have to also be very discerning in what you publish. And, you know, some people just write more than others. And they are still discerning. They just happen to write more. I mean, people who write every day are going to produce a lot of material. <laughs> so McEwen helped to edit the journal Moment from 1960 to 62 with Purdy and Acorn. And then she was briefly married to Acorn, who was 19 years older than her. Before the publication of her first two chapbooks of poetry in 61, Selah and the Drunken Clock, when she published Breakfast for Barbarians in 66, and The Shadowmaker in 69, which won the 1970 Gigi Award. And then 71, uh, she married the Greek singer Nikos Singos, and then she wrote a lot of books that were informed by mythology, including The Armies of the Moon, uh, Magic Animals, and The Fire Eaters, all produced in the 70s. And she translated poetry and uh, the anthology of 20th century poetry in English says that the voice she developed during this period is haunted by doubts about the border between dream and reality. Uh, so, I mean, her books were her worlds. She was writer in residence at the University of Western Ontario, University of Toronto in the 80s. Um, yeah, she published the T. Lawrence poems around this time. She was really good friends with Joe Rosenblatt. So, you know, 
I would hear uh, memories of Gwendolyn in the early days of knowing Joe because I met him in 96 and Gwendolyn died in 87. And for periods of, you know, my bond with Joe, I felt a little bit like he saw me as a kind of reincarnation or um, a reconnection with Gwendolyn uh, because I think I also got obsessed and still do, but not as much as I did with particular uh, subject matters or uh, research interests, like, for instance, Egon Schiele, which was my first book. And also I would memorize, and I still do, when I do public performances. And so there's that feeling of channeling. So it was kind of creepily beautiful to feel that bond with Gwendolyn. And and later on, uh, I did performances where I recited Dark Pines Underwater solo and with bands. And you can hear much earlier on, I think season two or three, maybe, uh, Susan McCaslin recite Dark Pines Underwater as well. So very influential poem. In Contemporary Poets, 1985, McEwen said, I write to communicate joy, mystery, passion, not the joy that naively exists without knowledge of pain, but that joy which arises out of and conquers pain. I want to construct a myth. Her poetry has been praised for surrealism, realistic imagery, fluid, playful use of language, a balancing act between convictions and questions. Her last work was a collection of poetry entitled Afterworlds, published after she died in 1987 and awarded the GG again. It is a hauntingly poignant book and possibly anticipated her death in November of that year. So I guess it was published just before she died. Uh, There's many different uh, interpretations of how she died, but uh, she had been, I mean, she was an alcoholic, but she'd stopped drinking. And a lot of people will say that that's why she died. Um, Her body just went into shock. So at any rate, obviously gone too soon and at the same time I know uh, that she didn't want to get old and that she was afraid of it and that she wanted to uh, maintain that mystique that energy of transparency and beauty that becomes of course harder and harder to create as you age in certain ways or you just have to transform you have to trust that you can alter into a different kind of exquisite beast. I'm going to read two of her poems. Uh, This one actually bugs me. It's called Let Me Make This Perfectly Clear, and it's from Afterworlds 87. And, I mean, what what she wanted us to take from this poem is that it's the life that matters, not the art or the artifact. But, of course... The poem matters. Um, that's what you, that's the channel for everything. And I think that there was, I mean, this this era in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of emphasis on very flat, direct language and actually not focusing much on on metaphor or the textures of sounds. And so I think there was that sense of, you know, well, basically don't reduce her to the poem. Don't diminish her to some um, kind of specialist in some 
tiny art form that is relegated to the dusty corner, but see her as a voice that wants to express the entirety of life. So let me make this perfectly clear. Let me make this perfectly clear. I have never written anything because it is a poem. This is a mistake you always make about me, a dangerous mistake. I promise you, I am not writing this because it is a poem. You suspect this is a posture or an act. I am sorry to tell you it is not an act. You actually think I care if this poem gets off the ground or not. Well, I don't care if this poem gets off the ground or not, and neither should you. All I have ever cared about, and all you should ever care about, is what happens when you lift your eyes from this page. Do not think for one minute it is the poem that matters. It is not the poem that matters. You can shove the poem. What matters is what is out there in the large dark and in the long light, breathing. Now, I think, of course, that both can exist. And I also don't like Leonard Cohen's notion of, you know, if you're living well, then poetry is just the ash. Because it's it's all one. Your life is not the fire and poetry is the ash. That just, I mean, ash is great for your garden. It's wonderful for your soil. Terrific. It's generative, actually. But it's not just the drag ends of your experience. It is an art form in and of itself. So I will end with her piece, The Discovery. Thank you, Gwendolyn McEwen. Do not imagine that the exploration ends, that she has yielded all her mystery, or that the map you hold cancels further discovery. I tell you, her uncovering takes years, takes centuries, and when you find her naked, look again. Admit there is something else you cannot name, a veil, a coating just above the flesh, which you cannot remove by your mere wish. When you see the land naked, look again. Burn your maps. That is not what I mean. I mean the moment when it seems most plain is the moment when you must begin again. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.